HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to cane5.com. What do Emmer, Kamet, Pharaoh, and Icorn have in common? We're going to find out on today's show. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, and you are listening to A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. And indeed, Emmer, Kamet, Einkorn, Einkorn, Amaranth, Pharaoh, names that some of you have heard, uh, maybe some of you haven't. But within the last 10 years or so, the rise in health and wellness and the uh, increased interest in natural ingredients has reintroduced these names to the market. They have actually uh, revived an interest and a reintroduction of a lot of these long-forgotten cereals. And today I have with me Maria Speck, who has written a wonderful book called Ancient Grains for Modern Meals. And she, in this book, she, she u- explains uses for all these grains and describes them, describes what to look for in the market and how to use them in preparation. And I can't wait to learn from her about some of these more unusual varieties. Welcome, Maria. Oh, hello, Linda. How are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, you know, it's um, what I did not mention is Maria it has a, um, a background in journalism and has written for a lot of publications. And is, and is this your first book, Maria? This is my first book, ah, correct. Okay. And this, <laughs> this book has actually just, I mean, really taken the market by storm, I have to say. <laughs> it, a lot, of course, due to your wonderful writing style and the fact Thank that you, you. you include so many personal, wonderful personal anecdotes in it that really put us in touch with a lot of our own feelings and, and memories. And uh, I think it kind of softens the reader's introduction to some grains that they might not really be so ready to try. But reading these stories and then reading the wonderful recipes well, takes us right into it. Also, and I will say that you, the, your recipes and your the demos that you've done in conjunction with this book, and it's well known that you conduct some wonderful cooking classes in Cambridge as well. <laughs> so, congratulations! It's a it's it's great. It's a great book, and it's it's been out for what a year now. Yes, for a year, and, and still going yeah. strong. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a very interesting background, having grown up in two different um, European cultures. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to your reintroduction with um, whole grains and ancient grains. Yeah, that's that's really at the center of this book because I am German and Greek. My dad was German and my mom is Greek. And whole grains were on a table simply as mouth part of or, you know, whole meals, mouth-watering, sensual, delicious meals. I was never, ever told to eat them because they're oh so good for me. And that was really the key message for me living in the U.S. I've lived in the U.S. since 1993. And whenever I told someone that I love whole grains or that I eat whole grains, people would look at me somewhat, you know, surprised and then it was say, well, you must live a very healthy life. And that was really not at the center of why I love them. I love them because of the texture. They really have distinct flavors, which are really wonderful, and even marvelous colors that they bring to your table. And at some point, you know, being a journalist, watching trends, I noticed that, you know, um, Americans were interested in whole grains. And I thought, you know, I really, we have to change the message of grains. <laughs> right. And that was really the key. And my passion is really to tell people they really can taste very good. And, and to come back just briefly to my own roots, I mean, um, anyone who's traveled to Germany has seen the country's amazing loaves of breads, you know, with many different flowers, textures. You would have like a, a whole grain loaf that has millet flour, it might have rye flour, it might have barley, and and then it might even have whole kernels. And so suddenly you have all these flavors, and that's what I was missing in the whole debate on grains. So so that's just part of it. We can talk more about this. Well, I mean, these so-called ancient grains, and and then you will explain a couple of them, and not all of them are necessarily grains, but, um, but this ancient grain category... I mean, it's it's a boon to the food industry as well because um, it just, from what I had read, it's estimated that only around 15 cereal crops are grown as staple food. So this reintroduction of these grains is really a way to increase our food diversity, and that's exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting, actually. Also, to see some of these ancient wheats also um, you know being more appreciated that's a very interesting development in the past few years these are um, varieties of wheat and we can talk more about this um, in, in, in more detail this is you know especially important for people that have gluten sensitivities right so um, that's something that I really like because I think some of these ancient wheats taste absolutely um, they're, they're so um, Distinct and they have such wonderful character wheats like, you know, Kamud, which has like a rich buttery flavor, or there's also um, Spelt, which, you know, probably a lot more people have heard and which is having a huge comeback in Europe as well as in the U.S., which is wonderful. And then Farro, of course, a very trendy grain. Very. <laughs> so, 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 so there's all these, you know, and I love seeing these um, ancient varieties really coming back to our tables because of the flavor they bring and also very distinct. Distinct again, you know, they, they're very distinct character each and one of them. And in the book, what I tried to do was with the recipes to 
prepare them, you know, to highlight their distinct flavor because, you know, yes, you know, a lot of people think grains are just bland, right, and just kind of this mass on our table. Right. And, and, you know, usually they're afraid because of the carbs and all of that and say they have no flavor. And that's, with all these ancient grains, each and every one of them has a, a character and a flavor. And that's what I try to do in the book, um, pairing them with their distinct, um, you know, to enhance their character, basically. Right. Well, now, we, we're, we keep saying ancient grains, and some of them, of course, have been with us for centuries and, and not, they were not lost. Many of them were sort of lost to us, to our knowledge. But wheat, of course, it, not necessarily in our modern form, but wheat has been around for, oh, that was one of the earliest crops ever, right? And yes, the fertile yes. crescent. Um, yes. So why don't, uh, why don't we talk about some of these in particular? Uh, which one, when, when you were rediscovering some that weren't in your uh, your repertoire of foods from your family's background. Which which were some of the newer ones that you discovered? I I have you know the one that I've been recently more recently been really fascinated is is um, Einkorn, which is a, a, a German name actually. Ein means single and Corn means kernel, and so it's really the oldest of all wheats, the and oldest. it's a very of all wheats. Mm-hmm. So um, the Italians call it, and that's where some of the confusion on farro comes in, the Italians call it, call it farro piccolo, which means small farro. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's one that I find very interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a, it cooks fairly quickly. It's a tiny kernel, and um, it's not grown very much yet, but it is having, you know, also a revival. I mean, chefs looking at it. We get a wonderful one from Anson Mills um, um, from, from the company that I really love. And that's, um, that's, um, distinct, you know, plump, aromatic um, wheat variety that I cherish. Then there's, I mentioned, Kamut with its rich buttery flavor that I really like, and then Spelt, as well as Emmer. Emmer is another one. That's what we often call farro in the U.S. when we, that's type of the Emmer variety of mm-hmm. wheat. Mm-hmm. I can detect a hint of cinnamon. I love using Emmer in, also in baking. It's, it's delicious, has a nuttiness. But as I said, also this hint of cinnamon. In my book, I, I have um, farro breakfast, for example, um, creamy farro with honey roasted grapes. That is really highlights, you know, by using also cinnamon as a spice. I roast grapes in the oven. I cook the farro with a little bit of anise and cinnamon, and then I drizzle it just with honey and and, um, cook it up with a little bit of cream. So it's, or half and half, you know, depending. Wonderful breakfast. That can make a believer out of anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I I tried really hard. (laughs) Well, I I do like that in the book you do give sources for people who don't, uh, live near places where they might be able to find these grains, Correct. and uh, it's great because you do give sources, as you said, Anson Mills, and there's mm-hmm. you know King Arthur and Arrowhead Mills, mm-hmm. and so people can research and and find mail order sources for a lot of these grains. Right? Mm-hmm. Then they- the interesting part, just to add to that, is what's really beautiful is since I wrote the book, because books take a while always to come to market. Mm-hmm. It's really wonderful to see that even average supermarkets now are having you know their grain selections are 
um, becoming bigger and bigger, which obviously has to do also with demand and with the with the new interest in grains, which is fantastic. I mean, we're not only talking of you know health food stores that obviously always had, but their grain sections, you know, have I think also become bigger. We have you know stores like Whole Foods that have now big bulk sections, and then we have even average supermarkets. I sometimes go and I'm like, wow, they have like red rice, they have black rice. That's right. That's right. And you know, and then they have barley and not just a pearl barley but they will have a barley that's you know somewhat a pearled but still has you know some of the fiber retaining and the nutrients so very interesting i mean there is um a lot more now that you can find even in your average supermarket and i love that mm-hmm. well now quinoa has been that that kind of burst onto the scene um Oh, about 10, 10 or 15 years ago is, you know, being this new ancient grain, uh, new, <laughs> an old, a new old grain, everything, everything yeah. new, everything old Every- is new again, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and quinoa, that's, that's from the, um, the pre-Columbian period, right? So uh, that's, but that is not a wheat then, and that's a gluten-free grain. Correct. That's gluten-free, and that's also one of the reasons. I mean, it's it's a really topic probably by itself to talk about in more detail. But basically, of course, the gluten-free movement has helped you know put some of these also again back onto our plates, and people get really interested in like even grains like millet are being noticed now, which I love because it's a quick cooking, wonderful everyday staple that we have completely overlooked, and you know, and it can be on the table in ten, fifteen minutes. Well, I- and, and tell me, well, tell me something about millet because mm-hmm. you tell a cute story um, in your book, and, <laughs> and and we we all have to go there that people think, oh my God, birdseed! I'm eating birdseed, right? Exactly. Yeah. I um I have learned obviously to not ever. I call it. I use the stealth serving technique for millet because I learned uh, very quickly that when if you tell someone that you're serving millet, they will exactly react like you did just now. Oh my God, bird food, and so. I I never, ever say I'm serving millet. So what I try is I hide it, and then I make sure that the food is delicious and that people, I have one dessert, for example, a ricotta millet pudding with warm raspberry uh, compote, Mm. which is, you know, you cook the millet with, you know, and then you you mix it with ricotta, lemon zest, a little bit of heavy cream, and um, and a honey-sweetened warm uh, raspberry compote on top. It's, It's similar to a rice pudding, really, and so it's actually something that people love. I mean, I have yet to find someone who won't lick their bowl clean, but of course, again, I will never say I'm serving millet. I will only tell it to them afterwards with a with a grin of a Cheshire cat. (laughs) For that, I'll eat birdseed, right? (laughs) That's good. (laughs) You just ate millet. (laughs) But what what I'm saying with that is really, um, you know, we are talking always, and that was really important for me also with the book. I'm a journalist, so, you know, I'm used to 12-hour days, all my you know, my whole career, I've worked very hard. I came home in my kitchen often famished with a capital F. I've always eaten whole grains. And that was really important to me um, in the book. I've tried to make this for anyone, for our busy lifestyles, to give people an opportunity how to cook whole grains, even if they're super busy. And so what I've done is, and that's, that's um, um, something that I find also, you know, I want to, 
tell people about is I've separated them into quick cooking and slow cooking whole grains because we think grains take forever to That's cook. Right. A That's lot right. of people think that, right? You have to and then soak say, them no. and boil them forever. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. And so, yeah, so, so what I'm trying to show is there's actually a lot of grains, whole grains, that can be on our table, what I call the quick cooking ones. This would be the millet that we just mentioned. There is, you know, obviously whole wheat couscous, which just needs a little bit of steaming. There's bulgur, which most of us know only from tabbouleh, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a versatile, you know, it can even just be rehydrated and eaten. I mean, it doesn't even need to be cooked. And so this is uh, from, from wheat, made from wheat. It's a traditional technique. And then, um, of course, we have, a, you know, cornmeal or polenta, which we can cook up fairly quickly, even in a busy weeknight. We have buckwheat so and quinoa, which we mentioned already. So there is such a variety of quick cooking grains. When I come home, I look at my shelf and I'm like, oh, I'll eat this tonight. So it's not something that really will take me more than 20 minutes or 15. But then, and that's true, there's slow cooking grains. How can you bring them to your table? What I'm what, I, what I've done in the book is give people several ways of how to incorporate them. So either, of course, you make them on the weekend because they do need soaking and they benefit from soaking as well as, as you know, a simmer of 45 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And those are like wheat, of course, you know, whole rye berries, hulled barley, which we call, you know, whole grain barley is called hulled barley. Then we have uh, whole oats, the, the actual berries, or spelled, or kamut, all of these that I mentioned earlier. So these, yes, they're extremely um, chewy, and they take longer to cook. But what I sometimes do is I soak them in the morning, I come home, and I turn on the stove, and they simmer while I just, you know, wash my face, change my clothes or something. And then they're halfway through cooking, yeah. you know, when I go to the kitchen. So there's many ways. Again, what I tried in the book is... You can do it. It's not something, you know, you have to stop in your tracks and eat three hours later. It's just a small, you know, sometimes we have to think ahead, you know, just like when we make beans from scratch, for right, example. Right. And you do, and you give a, a lot of varieties of wonderful recipes that do use these in, in many different ways, both cook, you know, long cooking and short cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned buckwheat, and that, mm-hmm. I have to say, was to me the surprise in the book. But mm-hmm. I didn't realize buckwheat was not, I mean, I've used it. I've used the buckwheat mm-hmm. flour. I've used, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, of course, noodles. We always have the soba noodles, but the mm-hmm. buckwheat noodles. I didn't realize that buckwheat is not really a wheat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. me about that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of, um, of uh, grains that, you know, they're called pseudo cereals. And because we eat them like a grain, that's why, you know, they're on our, they're on our plate like a grain. That's why we call them a grain. And buckwheat is one of them. Amaranth, quinoa, these are grasses. Buckwheat is really, um, um, another, you know, from a, it's, it's a, from a herbaceous plant and it belongs to the rhubarb and the sorrel family. So it only has the name from the Dutch word buckwheat, literally beechweed, and it refers to the beech nuts, which are larger but have a similar triangular shape. Mm. So um, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's all these little, you know, but in the end, I mean, how do we eat it? We eat it like a grain, and it has that, you know, that place um, on our table like a grain. So I felt really comfortable including all of these. Right. Well, we are going to find out some more and we're going to talk about some specific recipes when we come back after a short break
Winery are proud to support Heritage Radio Network and the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to keep5.com. Well, if you thought that eating whole grains and and being healthy with natural ingredients meant another brown rice diet and bowls of tabbouleh, well, we've got news for you. We're here with Maria Speck talking about ancient grains and some fabulous, fabulous recipes, Maria. Um, some of the pasta recipes are wonderful. And there was, you have, and the, the dessert recipes, I have to say, are uh, so surprising, just really <laughs> wonderful, and um, breads as well. Um, what I wanted to uh, to have you talk about, you mentioned something on it, and I said those people who were interested in, in healthy diets, you just eat these because they taste good, right? This was part of your background, and you love this, but did you not also find that it was a, kind of a, a stimulus to a weight loss program as well? Well, yeah, it's a bit, so, so I, I want to make this very clear. Obviously, I cherish that whole grains are healthy, right? <laughs> and I mean, I call them, I, um, I call them nutritional powerhouses, and, and I love that. What, what, um, what for me was important was it's the only food group that has the the, as the only label that they have attached to them is healthy. And that's what, where I felt like we've done them a real disservice over the past 15, 20 years by never actually thinking about how good they taste mm-hmm. and how, how wonderful. And so in my case, um, absolutely, I, I <laughs> they've truly changed my life because as a young journalist, just like everyone, you know, probably once you leave home, I forgot about all the good food at home and all I was eating was something in Germany we call um, chocoladen pudding mit sahne, which is really just from the store shelf. It's a chocolate pudding with whipped cream <laughs> and frozen pizza. So I was really on Sounds a, familiar. On a, on a very, very typical diet. And then a friend of mine served me at some point um, a wheat berry salad, which was nothing, you know, nothing difficult or anything. She had put some vegetables from the farmer's market. She was what we today call a locavore. <laughs> And, you know, with lemon, uh, lemon juice, olive oil. And she just put it in front of me. And, again, I was very lucky because she didn't talk about, oh, you have to try the salad. Wheatberries are very good for you. No, she just put this bowl in front of me and said, try this. Hmm. And for me, that was, I mean, obviously, you know, in my case, you know, brought back some memories, you know, really came full circle, you know, tasting wheatberries again, which I had tasted as a child in Greece. And um, it just made me so curious because of the texture and, again, the flavors they have, and it brought me into the kitchen. And that's where, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that happen when we cook, right? right. But one, one thing that was, for me was important is I, I tell people really the moment I brought, you know, grains center stage into my life because I was also as a young woman always dieting. I mean, like every, I, I, I would be hard pressed to think of a young woman nowadays that's not dieting and I was just the same. And that was really interesting for me because the moment I put grains on my 
plate, you know, like on, on the center of my plate and used vegetables, fruits, and like meat and fish just as accents and for flavor, I never, ever had to think about dieting again. It was really an amazing transformation. And of course, I do cook. I learned to cook. I stopped eating frozen pizza, which I'm sure contributed. <laughs> yes. But, but so, so what was really, that was really for me a, a wonderful experience because I was not able to, to diet. I mean, I simply love food so much. So for me, dieting never really worked. Right. Well, and as you say, you were in the kitchen and you were cooking and you appreciated the food more. You, and in fact, yes. you, you, many of us who do cook find this to be true. You, you're touching the food, you're stirring it, you're waiting. There's that anticipation. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a more appreciation. You gave it a name. You called it. Um, well, it's what we call it mindful eating today, and you know, trying in a lot of the uh, the weight loss journals. Um, but you called it your truffle theory. Well, <laughs> I was very concerned, one. but I did decide to put it in because it is actually something that I, you know, often thought about in my life that um, when I prepare and I loved, I, you know, I have a weakness for a very good piece of chocolate or a, a chocolate truffle. And at some point I learned to make them. They're very easy to make, especially the uh, a basic ganache truffle is, is very easy to make, which we often don't realize how easy these things are. And so... What I learned was that, you know, while normally when you buy, you know, when someone gives you a box of chocolates and you just eat them kind of mindlessly, what you were saying, and you just can't stop eating. But what I found is when I make them and I try some of these homemade, you know, they're, of course, extremely fresh, you know, they're meltingly tender. I I can taste the aromas. But I also remember, you know, I went shopping for the ingredients. I rolled them. I waited for them to chill. So it is some, you know, it's not difficult to make, but it has some steps involved. And so that's when, you know, I eat one truffle or two and that's it. And I'm so happy and it tastes so good and I'm so appreciative. And that's what I wanted to say with this when I called it the truffle theory. This was obviously provocative (laughs) in a whole grain cookbook. But that, that was, it was meant that way because just to remind people, you know, when you have good food and when you cook it yourself, you also appreciate it more. And that's part of us, you know, when we eat, you know, and we're all guilty of that. I mean, I'm including myself when I'm busy at the computer, I will eat something at the side and I try not to, right? But Mm -hmm. we all have that, but I always try not to. I mean, for me, that's important when I eat to appreciate what I eat, actually, (laughs) you know, so, but that's why I called it, why I ended up uh, calling it the (laughs) job. It, well, it caught my attention, so that, <laughs> that was good. Um, tell yeah, me, when <laughs> you've been doing a lot of demos and, and talks over this past year uh, for the book, what what grain do you, is there is there one grain that you can think of that maybe people tend to ask most about, maybe they're more confused about than others? Uh, perhaps not, but I'm just wondering if there's you know one that, that stands out that people ask about often. Um, I'm actually, I couldn't say that, you know, because people, I mean, that was also a reason why I wrote the book. Another, another, uh, something that I've observed and also learned through the past years, people really want to cook with whole grains, but there's so much confusion out there mm-hmm. on, you know, what is actually a whole grain and, um, you know, like what, what I mentioned briefly, what Italians call farro, but what it actually is. And so there's also, you know, a terminology confusion. You know, how do you know that hulled barley is whole grain barley? And so mostly I find that people really want to learn, you know, about the grains, 
the different grains. And, of course, they want to taste them. That's what I find the most amazing, that whenever you give people something, they really, um, it's like an eye-opener, like, like you were saying, you know, to make desserts with whole grains. That's usually very surprising for people, you right. know, that you can have whole grains for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and even for dessert. And that's, for me, I mean, it's, uh, that's how I've always eaten, and these are the things that I love. And so that's why I put them in. But So it's not so much one grain, but more about how do we cook them? How do we right. store them? How do we store them is a question that people ask a yes. lot. And, and because they are also found, people are extremely frightened of, you know, and having the grain go bad overnight because it contains the natural oils, the germ, and the bran. And so I try to explain grains are really, you know, that's why we have grains in our diet today, because they brought us over the winter. They're actually very hardy, and no, I mean, except if you store them on a sunny window, grains will not go bad in, you know, many months if you store them in a cool, dark place. But you do recommend um, putting them in a, uh, a jar? Correct. I recommend, and that's something I've learned in Germany. I love that actually for two reasons. For one is I use just simple mason jars mm-hmm. because they're, they're economical and very, very practical also to use, and you see what you have at one glance, which is great. I think, you know, versus having your bags, you know, digging them out of the fridge somewhere and not knowing what's in there and what you actually have, for, you know, as a supply. And then the other thing is obviously it contains, you know, contaminations. If you have it in a jar, you can just take care of it versus if you keep grains in bags, you know, then you might have a problem potentially. But I think a cool place is definitely recommended, a cool, dark place. And I searched that one out. But again, I mean, grains, even whole grain flowers last many months. Mm-hmm. And they, and it's amazing because they do retain their, all the, the nutritional elements, don't they? The, the uh, proteins and the, and the vitamins. Yeah, yeah, they do. You know, I mean, very freshly milled flour is certainly the very best. And uh, if uh, that's, that's where I want to go next. That's <laughs> but, what I want to talk about. Exactly. But, you know, <laughs> I always one has to be, you know, really think about what is practical for people. So if you're a passionate baker like me, I love, you know, my own bread and my own cookies and scones and I'm, I just love baking. Then a grain mill or a grain mill attachment, which some companies offer, is a great investment because you will just be blown away by the quality of freshly milled flour. And that's actually a big trend right now in the U.S., that bakers look for local grains and freshly milled flour. Because right. If people don't have their own mills, they're, they're going to granaries that will mill correct. them right there on site. Correct. It's, I think we that's have, fabulous. That's yeah. fabulous. We have in Boston, I've been working with one Massachusetts farm, Four Star Farms, um, very closely in the past year and introducing them to local chefs here because they mill their fa- flour fresh on when you need it. And so if you've ever side by side eaten, you know, the same cookie, and I've done that, I've done it also with other people, it is really like when you have a farmer's market tomato in August versus a supermarket tomato in December. You can really taste the difference I of mean, that fresh milled flour, even in a cookie. Right? Anyone will taste this. I can assure you this. I've had the most amazing experience, and I sometimes forget it because when I worked on the book, I used store-bought flowers, I have to because people have to be able to replicate these recipes. Mm-hmm. And then I mill fresh flour and I make some scones and I'm like, oh, what 
happened? What's that? <laughs> Why does it taste so good? And then I'm like, yeah, of course it does taste. So even I, when I many months, you know, doing the testing of the book, then it goes away, right, from your mind, and then you realize. And it is really that good. So if you're passionate, I think it's, it's a great investment to make or to seek out your local farm that will mill it for you. And, of course, we have to let our listeners know that this is a woman who has a mill both in her home in the U.S. and in her home in Germany. Oh, you are a serious home miller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're, of course, undestructible German mills. <laughs> <laughs> Not just so your little hand economical, crank. <laughs> it's a very economical thing I've done. <laughs> yeah, that's terrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, well, there, before we um, go on to a couple recipes, one thing I wanted to mention was that um, Oh, I wanted to ask you. I was. I wanted to ask you which of the grains. Of, I think we all kind of know because we're familiar. But the ones that have had some of the ancient grains that have had the, let's say the the best comeback performance, uh, which have become uh, not the ones for you, obviously, because you know all the, the different ones. But which ones have really caught on and and have attracted people's attention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we mentioned you know one that has really caught on with uh, especially with the gluten free, but as, as a result also with much of you know chef, many chefs and people is quinoa, yes. which we mentioned, which cooks up really fast. It's a wonderful flavor and it's extremely versatile. Also, mm-hmm. you know, can use it in salads. In you can make um, quinoa cakes with it. You can make dessert with it. Again, uh, really delicious. Another one I mentioned is spelt. Spelt, especially spelt, baked goods with spelt, it bakes up beautifully, and so that's a great one, an ancient wheat. And what I haven't mentioned yet is if you are gluten-sensitive, and I'm not talking of people with celiac disease because they should have no gluten whatsoever, mm-hmm. obviously, but there's a lot of people that feel uncomfortable when they eat modern-day wheats, which are bred um, and, and hybridized and are bred to be easily harvested. That's mm-hmm. all. And so they have changed wheat. Wheat has changed a lot, basically. Some of the people seem to be able to digest these ancient wheats like spelt, kamut, emmer, which, you know, we also call farro, um, more easily. And that's very interesting. And yeah. obviously the, the research, I think, will come. You know, I'm sure people are looking into this. But they seem to be able to digest it, people that are gluten-sensitive. And I find that very interesting. So spelt is one. That's, I think, why spelt is having such a comeback. Another one is farro, also in the wheat family. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one is, you know, wonderful, plump, and, and really um, delicious. And, again, can be used in breakfast. I have, um, I have a, a farro with white wine and mussels, a, a stew in the book, which, I, which can be cooked up really quickly, even on a weeknight. And so these are the ones, I think, that, that are really having a, a, a huge comeback. And so what I'm hoping with the book is that some of the others, right, that we really also bring them to our table, especially the quick-cooking ones, like I mentioned, you know, millet, bulgur, um, um, also, you know, buckwheat you are familiar with. Yes. Even amaranth, I'm, I'm working yeah, on. That, that I'm anxious to try some. Uh, I've had it in, you know, cereals mixed in with other grains, but I'm anxious to try something with the amaranth. I think that would be exciting. Well, what um, we don't have time to go through a recipe, but what I wanted to mention for our listeners, that, uh, that the, what is surprising, I think, to a lot of people and also very encouraging and, and delightful is that the book is organized. It is a regular cookbook, and it's organized according to you know starts and main courses and salads and desserts. Uh, so it really does show the versatility 
And I think you did a wonderful job in that regard. I think that's terrific. Um, hopefully we'll be able Thank to you. post a recipe for your wheat berry fool with, with <laughs> figs. That sounds wonderful. And I you know, and, try them. <laughs> and, well, and something, and, you know, and people, I mean, not to, not to think that everything has to be so involved. I mean, you have the, like an artichoke rosemary tart with a polenta crust. I mean, how, you know, how, that's that's almost I'm going to say ordinary. It's not ordinary, but it's so approachable, and I think it's it's something that can be such a wonderful introduction for people to to be adventurous and try something new. And yeah, try something new that is very very old, right? Yeah, and it was really important for me to be to make it so that really anyone can do that. And I mean, the book has been cooked from for one year now, and I have knock on wood. <laughs> I have yet. I have everyone. I mean, it seems to everyone has no problems with the recipes, which is wonderful for me as the author, right? That's Terrific. always something yes. that you feel. Yeah, so, so it's been really cooked through <laughs> oh, that's great. by a lot of readers. So, yeah. Well, I, I'm just so thrilled that it is um, not only a, you know, a delicious cookbook and, and uh, as you say, the recipes work, but it's a great introduction for people who aren't familiar with these ancient grains and a great way to get them to introduce them into their diet. And I encourage our listeners to take a look and try some of these old grains. Maria, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed and thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.